You're listening to Certified, Canada's Class Actions Podcast. I'm your host, Suzanne Kyoto. Each week I'll be discussing all aspects of class actions with the leading experts in this area. The results are just like a class action. Thought-provoking, lively, and always slightly unpredictable. Happy listening. Hi everyone, welcome to Certified, Canada's Class Actions Podcast, and today we have with us Michael Legg from the University of New South Wales in Sydney. He's a professor of law there. Michael, hi, how are you doing? I'm very well, how are you? I'm fine, thanks. Thanks for coming on the show. Ah, my pleasure. Great. Uh, so Michael, uh, for the listeners, is going to te- uh, talk to us about uh, class actions in Australia, which... Uh, we've had uh, stuff on class actions from different jurisdictions, and now we're we're looking at Australia in this episode. So, Michael, perhaps you could start us off by just telling us a little bit about yourself and about your background and how you got into the class action space. Okay. Well, uh, I guess I uh, I started as a uh, a practitioner, so mm-hmm. I, I worked as a lawyer for about three years with an Australian firm. I then went to the United States where I did a a Master's of Law at the University of California, Berkeley. And I took a class there uh, by a a professor from from Duke University, actually, uh, Francis McGovern, Mm -hmm. called uh, Complex Civil Litigation. And that was really my first um, introduction into class actions and the range of interesting issues that they raise. And from there, I went on to... um, uh, to work for a, a firm in New York called uh, Oric Harrington and Sutcliffe, mm-hmm. um, and I did a lot of mass tort class actions there. And then ultimately, I came back to Australia, where I continued as a practitioner for a while, working on, uh, I guess, sort of shareholder financial product um, and product liability class actions. And then in 2009, uh, I decided I would try and be an academic. <laughs> Uh, and I still, I'm still here today. Um, so I, I created a few courses at the university um, around class actions, and I've been teaching and researching the area since. Mm-hmm. And is it primarily in shareholder class actions that you specialise? Uh, I think that's probably uh, true. I mean, I, I, I do spend quite a bit of time looking at uh, the class action procedures in general, mm-hmm. which I think comes from the fact that my background or the, the area that I teach in is civil procedure. Mm-hmm. Um, but I've also, uh, my other, I guess, area has been corporate law. And so uh, they, they, I guess, uh, cross over in the shareholder class action space. Okay, great. And uh, just out of interest, what do you teach? What courses do you teach on class actions? Uh, so I guess the way that I've done it is um, I've got an undergraduate and a postgraduate course around complex litigation. Mm-hmm. And then it also uh, comes up, I teach a white collar crime course. And uh, the, the focus there in terms of class actions is the whole uh, public versus private enforcement. Mm. So I, one of the things I did when I came back to Australia was I did a PhD, uh, which was on public versus private enforcement in relation to shareholder class actions. And so the white collar crime uh, course lets me sort of delve into the idea of class actions as uh, an enforcement tool. Great. Okay. So then let's talk about um, class actions in Australia in general. Can you can you give us an overview of of how they work? This is a very generalistic question. We're going to get more into the specifics in a second. But tell us about class actions in Australia. How they work. How they developed. Okay. 
Uh, so I guess in many ways, the class action in Australia uh, is fairly recent. So I think it's been around for about, uh, last count, like 27 years. Mm -hmm. And really the, the, the sort of the evolution is there was a Law Reform Commission report uh, in 1988 and the, the commission was asked, does Australia have sufficient procedures for dealing with um, group claims? And it effectively came back and said, whilst we have um, court rules that deal with representative actions, so the sort of the old style yep. uh, mm -hmm. procedure from the, the Chancery Court in England, mm -hmm. uh, there's been shown to be deficiencies with that um, procedure. Um, and probably the, the, the great example of that is a case called Carney and Asander, uh, which went to the High Court of Australia. So the ALRC effectively said, no, look, we need a grouping procedure for access to justice and to have a more efficient way of resolving multiple disputes. And so at the federal level, the Australian Parliament in 1991 uh, enacted legislation, uh, Part 4A of the Federal Court of Australia Act, uh, which took effect from 1992. And so initially uh, the class action uh, uh, I guess pick up rate or, or use was fairly low. And then what we found was uh, product liability tended to be a fairly um, popular choice of case. Mm -hmm. And often that was because the Australian practitioners uh, were looking overseas and seeing, well, what sort of class actions are being brought in say the United States or Canada. And then if you're thinking about a, you know, a pharmaceutical that's sold around the world, they're then sort of uh, mimicking that mm -hmm. in the Australian environment. Uh, but today, I mean, it's diversified. And so uh, shareholder class actions, uh, financial product or financial services class actions are very common. Um, and I guess, you know, the other thing we have, which I guess I would describe as the very Australian class action um, is claims around bushfires and floods. Right. Mm -hmm. So, Following on from that, you said just now that the ALRC report in 1988 talked about access to justice and efficiency, which I presume is sort of our equivalent of judicial economy, not, not having multiplicity of proceedings, that kind of thing. It doesn't say, or did it say anything about behaviour modification? Because several of our reports did in Canada. So is that something that's missing from the Australian law reform piece? Uh, it's interesting you raise that because the... The way that the ALRC approached it was uh, effectively to say uh, that's not what the class action is about. Mm. It's it's. I mean, they they looked at I guess uh, deterrence or compliance, right? And they didn't see that as being uh, being the main um, driver. They did recognise that class actions could have that effect, but that wasn't really um, the the object. Mm -hmm. And certainly, when you look at the um, the, the statements from the parliament, the second reading speech when the legislation was enacted, um, all of the focus is on the access to justice and the judicial economy. Mm -hmm. um, and it's only when you, I mean, I think uh, uh, having gone through these, there's one statement um, in the Senate, um, which in some ways was not really part of the second reading speech at all, where there's one minister who says, oh, this will help out the, uh, the regulators. It'll help out our securities regulator and our competition and consumer regulator. Mm -hmm. um, so the, so the, the idea was there, but it was not at the forefront. 
okay, it was a sort of uh, that. That's almost a, a, a remark in passing then by the Senate. Yes. Mm, okay. And then the second follow-on question I had was: you talked about a delay in in, a, in getting in, in class actions picking up in Australia after the legislation was passed. How long would you say what that that delay was? I guess it was a gradual thing, but yeah, no, I think that was probably. Um... Oh, I, you know, I would say like there was like a five year sort of um, hiatus. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, the the I guess the best description I've I've uh, heard was uh, one of our former justices of the federal court, uh, Justice Ronald Sackville, um, launched a uh, collection of class action articles for a law journal once. Mm-hmm. And he was pointing out that uh, he saw that what happened with class actions was actually consistent with almost... Um, all sorts of innovations in the law. Right. Um, in that the, the lawyers were sort of, um, you know, fairly conservative in their approach. And so they took a little while um, to work out how they might use this new procedure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's reflected in, uh, uh, well, certainly in the early legislation, Quebec, Ontario, in Canada, that it took, it took about 10 years in Quebec and five to 10 years in Ontario for people to start really using the class proceedings acts or the equivalent legislation so yeah i think you're right there so uh let's talk uh, let's get back to australia so how do class actions work within australia's federal structure i mean i presume the federal structure there is similar to the federal structure here there's a federal government you have states uh and we have provinces uh, as well as the federal you know within the federal structure is that how it works and how do the states work you know between each other and under the federal structure and can you explain a bit more about that? Sure. So uh, I guess, you know, first the, the sort of the, the geography history lesson. Um, so Australia is a federal system and it has a written constitution. Um, basically, uh, there are six states and two territories. And I, I guess the thing that's the, in terms of, I guess, comparison that, that uh, people need to factor in is that whilst we have a federal system, and certainly when Australia was, um, uh, when the Federation was created back in 1901, um, it did look uh, to the United States uh, quite a bit, but our federalism um, is nowhere near as strong as what you would see in the US. Mm-hmm. And I would say not as strong as what you see in, in Canada. Okay. So, so although we have a federal system, um, a lot more things, I guess, are um, centralized in Australia. Um, And so over the years, the federal um, level of government has become stronger and stronger and and more important. Um, And when you start to look at something like class actions, that is sort of borne out in the sense that uh, it was the federal government that enacted class actions first. And then a number of years later, uh, the first state, uh, Victoria, enacted um, class actions in, I think, about 2000. New South Wales, where I'm based, uh, then um, enacted legislation in 2010. Um, and then in more recent years, we've seen Queensland and Tasmania. Mm-hmm. So effectively, the, the whole east side of Australia now has states with class action procedures. Uh, Western Australia uh, is looking at it. And indeed, my understanding is they have uh, legislation drafted. And we're sort of all wondering when they're going to actually enact it. Because that's been in the pl- in the pipeline for a while hasn't it western australia a few years i think yes yes i mean it's 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 sort of a strange situation because they did a law reform report that recommended it and they sort of 
I think there were announcements made that they would do it. And that continued on for quite a long time. And then they released legislation, which I, I think people thought was going to happen very quickly. And it still hasn't been uh, enacted. Hmm. So, but I guess the thing to, to take into account though is um, the state's legislation is modeled on the federal system. Right. And so when we talk about how class actions operate in Australia, it's pretty much the same uh, for every jurisdiction that you are that you could be in. There are minor differences, um, and certainly, you know, if you if you are practicing in the area, you've got to be across those. But in terms of generally how class actions operate, um, it's it's very similar. Okay, and for the states that don't have class action legislation, I presume that I mean Western Australia is one. I presume Tasmania, um, uh, Northern Territory. Oh, I don't know how the territories actually work in that structure because they're a different question in Canada too. But anyway, let, let's just take the states. So Tasmania presumably doesn't, Western Australia doesn't. Can they bring class actions then just under the federal legislation or is there any restriction on that jurisdiction? No. So, okay. um, well, well I, let, me, let me clarify that. So Tasmania has enacted class actions legislation. The other jurisdiction that hasn't is South Australia. Mm -hmm. But... South Australia has its own unique, um, I guess, grouping procedure. And mm -hmm. so what you'll see in, so you've got class actions in say four of the six states, mm -hmm. but in all of the states, you still uh, tend to have the representative action that I, I talked about at the right. very beginning. Um, and of course, if you've got um, a claim that can be brought in federal court, then you can use the federal um, class action regime. Mm -hmm. Now, the way that it tends to work in Australia is if you've got a federal cause of action and a state cause of action, then you can use the federal court. So the only thing that you can't really get into uh, federal court would be a claim based purely on, say, contract or tort. Hmm. And so where we've, you know, where we talk about the, you know, the bushfire or the flood type class actions, because they are very much... Um, you know, common law claims generally, mm -hmm. they have had to be in the state courts. But the other types of claim, shareholder, product liability, consumer, they're all in the federal court. Okay, so you would say that mostly they could go by way of the federal court except for these more tort contract type actions? Exactly. Okay, great. Uh, so then you, you sort of mentioned the kinds of class actions that are brought in Australia. What, which types do you think are most prevalent and so what, what types of class actions are most prevalent and where are they most frequently commenced? Is there sort of a, you know, Ontario's been uh, predominant to date uh, in, in, in Canada. Is there a, an equivalent in Australia? Yeah, so I guess, um, so in terms of types of class actions, um, what the statistics tend to show is uh, the main types of claims are um, uh, investor claims, then shareholders, product liability, claims by employees, mass tort and consumer protection. Hmm. Now that's changed over time. Um, so the investor and shareholder claims have, are more recent. So the last sort of 10 years, mm -hmm. whilst product liability um, and employee were the ones, um, I guess when the, the, the regime first started. Um, and in terms of where the claims are brought, um, the federal court has got the, I guess, the, the largest number of claims because it's been around longer and it's, you know, a lot of these claims are claims under federal jurisdiction. Mm -hmm. But what I think we've started to see is um, 
New South Wales, which is um, has always been a very popular court in terms of commercial disputes, mm -hmm. um, has been starting to get more claims. And one of the things that uh, hopefully we'll talk about later in relation to sort of uh, the way in which lawyers charge fees, uh, Victoria has recently enacted uh, some legislation which allows for a quasi-contingency fee. Mm -hmm. And so I think there's a, um, a view that we may see more cases gravitate towards Victoria to mm -hmm. be able to take um, um, advantage of that. Okay. And just to put that in context, no other jurisdiction in Australia permits contingency fees? Is that right? No, so contingency fees are illegal. Mm. We actually have legislation um, in all jurisdictions, all state jurisdictions, saying that it's illegal. Wow. Um, so what Victoria has done um, is quite um, unique. Mm. So what's a quasi-contingency fee if contingency fees themselves are illegal? So what the, um, what the Victoria did was it decided that it would enact what it's called group costs orders. And in some ways, the, the, they are most similar, I guess, to the sort of common fund way of charging that you see in the United States in relation to legal fees. Mm -hmm. So what they've done is they've amended their class actions legislation, but not the legislation dealing with um, the legal profession and legal fees. Right. And, and, and so obviously what, what the, the, the more recent legislation says is, you know, it, it operates and overrides what's in any of the legal profession legislation. So you don't get the, um, the, the, the conflict. Mm -hmm. But the way that the Victorian uh, regime works is, firstly, it only applies after the proceedings are commenced. So you commence your class action and then a plaintiff um, can apply to the court for an order that legal costs are to be calculated as a percentage of um, an award or a settlement. Mm -hmm. But there's a number of conditions and, and the, probably the two most important ones, um, the lawyers have to agree to be liable for the defendant's costs if the case is unsuccessful mm. and the defendants have got to be prepared to put up any security for costs. So it's, it's a, um, it's a, I guess a form of, uh, contingency fee in that it's a percentage of the recovery but rather than it being determined contractually um, you need a court order for it to be able to operate and the court has to determine that it's in the interest of justice to make such an order okay wow that's really interesting yeah a parallel in Ontario is that Ontario didn't have contingency fees until the class actions legislation came about and that's how con contingency fees got its foot in the door of the province so if anyone's anti-contingency ah. fees in Victoria then they might want to watch out because <laughs> that's how it begins so uh then let's talk about a unique we've talked about some already but some unique attributes of the Australian class actions regime so I mean, the first one that comes to my mind is that there's no certification requirement. So how, how do class actions there function in the absence of one? Because I, I just spoke to some, I just did a, another interview today on certification and the lawyers I was talking to there thought that certification was the core of class actions, but you don't have any, so. No, no, so the, the way that it works in Australia is, um, there are what are, what are um, I guess, uh, referred to as the gateway um, uh, requirements. Mm -hmm. So to commence a class action, you need uh, seven or more persons um, with a claim against um, a, a defendant or defendants. 
Um, those claims need to arise from uh, the same similar or related circumstances. And there needs to be a, i.e. one, common issue of fact or law. If you um, file a, um, a pleading, um, an application to commence proceedings, and you set out in the um, documentation how each of those are met, then your class action commences mm -hmm. and it's on foot and it's running. Now, rather than it needing to be certified by the court to say, yes, that's okay to go ahead, the, the onus is effectively reversed. And so it's then up to a defendant to challenge the class action. And they do that by either saying those gateway requirements are not met, or we have a, a, um, a provision called, um, it's section 33 capital N, and it's known as the sort of the declassing uh, provision. Mm -hmm. And what it effectively does is it allows a defendant um, or the court of its own motion to decide that um, a class action should not proceed. And there's uh, four or five requirements in relation to that. Um, but they're basically things like the class action is not an efficient way to proceed. Um, there's some reason that makes the class action unsuitable. Uh, and that then allows them to, allows the court to make an order saying, this can't proceed as a class action. Mm -hmm. So the, the claims or the representative uh, party's claim is able to continue as a normal piece of litigation, but the class action can't continue. Right, so they can continue on an individual basis, but not on a class basis. Yes. If it's decertified, right. Okay. Uh, and uh, you also, in Australia, I, I, as I recall, there's a big push back against uh, Cypre or Cipre distributions. What is what is Australia's beef with Cipre distributions? Uh, well, see, this, this, this goes all the way back to the ALRC report. Mm -hmm. And um, one of the, the points that you touched on at the beginning, it's that... Um, I guess, focus between compensation and behaviour modification. Mm -hmm. So the ALRC focused on compensation and, you know, not interested in deterrence or behaviour uh, modification. And so from their perspective, the only people that should be able to make a claim under a class action or, um, I guess, receive funds under a class action is somebody that actually shows that they've suffered loss. Mm. So... If the focus is compensation, um, then you've got to have um, an actual group member who is standing there saying, I've suffered loss. Mm -hmm. So the idea that you could go, oh, there's these people out there who we believe have suffered loss, um, but they haven't come forward. We still want the defendant to pay for that. Uh, that's an anathema in, in, in relation to how the class action procedure works in Australia. Mm -hmm. And indeed, it, you would probably say it's contrary to the way in which our um, our legislation is structured as well. So I touched on 33N. Uh, um, mm -hmm. We also have a provision called, uh, which is 33M. And 33M basically says, look, if this class action is being brought in relation to a bunch of very small losses, and it's going to be uneconomic to effectively prove those losses, mm -hmm. that's another reason to discontinue the class action. Okay. Interesting. So it's, it's it's effectively saying, look, if you think you're going to bring a class action and you're going to need a Cypre distribution, then don't bring your class action. 
Wow. That's that's really interesting because one of our earlier episodes on the theory of class actions had a Canadian academic and a Canadian lawyer talking about how behavior modification can be the sole justification for a class action. And that's that might be a, a slightly sort of outlier opinion amongst lawyers and academics in Canada generally, but it's it's not it's not an inconceivable opinion, whereas it sounds like in Australia, it's completely out of the window. You would never even consider that. Well, I think the, the, the way I would describe it is that um, the plaintiff lawyers are very keen on Cypre mm-hmm. and they have tried to get it, um, the legislation modified. So um, when New South Wales enacted its um, class action regime, the initial um, exposure draft of the regime actually included um, uh, Cypre distributions. So hmm. specifically um, was going to allow for them. And at that point, um, I was on a committee of the Law Society of New South Wales, and we were asked to put in a submission. And uh, I wrote that submission for the Law Society, and we effectively opposed the Cypre editions. And one of our concerns was that nobody had really studied or analysed what that meant or how it would operate mm. in Australia. Um, it had sort of been thrown in there at the last minute. And we were aware that there was a... Um, quite a literature coming out of the United States, which had a concern that Cypre was really about enriching lawyers, that it allowed you to say, oh, my class action has you know, recovered so much more money and therefore the amount either lawyer should be paid should be higher because mm-hmm. look what a great job I've done. When in fact, there are no, there, there's no group member there to actually receive the money. Mm-hmm. And so as a result, the New South Wales Attorney General took that provision out. So we did flirt with it, um, and the plaintiff lawyers, I think, would continue to push for it. Um, but I think if, if somebody wants that reform in Australia, uh, they really need to back it up with some sort of uh, research and um, explanation as to why it's required. Mm-hmm. I think Canada would be a good jurisdiction to, or a good country to look to for um, for some empirical data on that. So, uh, okay, so th- let's move then on to costs. What are, what are the cost rules in class actions in Australia? Uh, and if it's loser pays, how are rep plaintiffs protected from potential adverse costs awards? Right, so it is loser pays. Mm-hmm. So um, we, you know, Australia follows uh, the English system that we inherited. Mm-hmm. And so as a result, uh, if you're a plaintiff and you bring uh, litigation, if you're unsuccessful, then you're uh, liable for your opponent's costs. Now, in the class action regime, um, interestingly, they didn't deal with that when they first enacted it, but it became an issue pretty quickly. And so um, an amendment was made and it basically pointed out that the representative party is liable for those costs, but group members are not. So they Mm -hmm. shielded the group member from that liability. But the representative party is very much in the gun for those costs. Mm -hmm. And in some ways, that then explains a lot of developments in relation to um, Australian class actions. So the way that was initially dealt with was people brought class actions with the plaintiff as effectively what was called a straw man. Mm. You'd pick someone who had no assets. Oh, yeah, sneaky. Okay. Mm -hmm. Now, the problem, of course, with that is that doesn't necessarily align with them being an adequate representative. Right. Um, But that's the way that it was done. Then what tended to come along was litigation funding. And we can talk about that in some more detail. Mm -hmm. But 
the real advantage of litigation funding was not only did it pay the lawyers fees to be able to bring the class action it provided an indemnity to the representative party mm -hmm. in relation to the loser pays risk and so once you've got a funder involved then your representative party is protected and then the latest development um, is what's called after the event insurance oh right okay and so the idea of that is once you um, commence your litigation you go to an insurer um, you know usually somebody based in London mm -hmm. um, and they will charge you a very high premium <laughs> yes. to effectively take on the risk of having to pay out if the, if the litigation is unsuccessful mm -hmm. and perhaps the um, the other combination that's interesting is litigation funders will actually um, charge a plaintiff for after the event insurance mm -hmm. so the funder says I'll indemnify you oh but I'm also going to go and get insurance to cover you or is that me I'm covering I'm covering somebody <laughs> um, but basically we take the risk off the table right well, that's interesting yeah AT insurance uh, insurers are as you know big in England but they're only just getting into Canada now and they're there people are only just developing an awareness of what uh, after the event insurance is here uh, and previously we've had other ways of covering it but okay so you, you mentioned third-party litigation funding that has become um, a, a, a huge issue in Australia recently if I'm if I'm right you know there's been a parliamentary inquiry uh, you yes. took part in a, a report uh, so tell us about the background and the recent developments in third-party litigation funding okay so um Litigation funding, um, to my understanding, was pioneered in Australia. So mm. it's uh, it's one of our great inventions, which we've uh, shared with the world. <laughs> um, and the, the the I guess it, where it came from was it, initially it was used in insolvency actions in Australia, mm. and then because of the problems in relation to um, the way in which costs worked in the class action regime, um, litigation funding saw a, a need for somebody um, providing its sort of services in the class action space. Mm -hmm. So it dealt with the loser pays problem. And the fact that we didn't um, have contingency fees, I guess also sort of fed into the idea that the funder would come in and would take a percentage. Mm -hmm. And so th that meant that um, it, it sort of slowly developed, um, you know, started to get used in a few class actions. And Today, I guess, it's become a key source of class action funding. And indeed, in shareholder class actions, um, I think the latest Australian Law Reform Commission report shows every one of those claims has litigation funding behind mm. it. So the issue that's, that's I guess, sort of um, then come to the fore is, um, how should you regulate litigation funders? And uh, I mean, initially there was, it, it was an unregulated area. Mm -hmm. um, some funders, you know, did more to try and, um, I guess, regulate themselves than others. But where we effectively got to is, um, I guess, two main issues. So one is, is litigation funding a, um, a financial service? Or mm -hmm. there's a particular category of, um, I guess, financial service or financial product in Australia called a managed investment scheme. Mm -hmm. And um, 
in some ways, defendant lawyers trying to derail class actions went, oh, let's attack the existence of the litigation funder and use that as a way to sort of, you know, um, slow down, stuff mm -hmm. up the class action. And so court started to say, oh, yes, it does seem as though this litigation funding arrangement is a managed investment scheme or, you know, maybe it's a financial service. But government stepped in and said, no, 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 we're going to pass some regulations. It's none of those things. Um, the only thing that's required is that funders regulate um, conflicts of interest. Mm -hmm. And that continued along for um, quite, a, quite a long time until this year where there seems to have been a change of heart in relation to the, the, the current government. Hmm. So they are the ones that decided that they, um, they wanted the, um, the parliamentary joint committee. But even before it has reported, they have removed the regulations that had previously existed so that litigation funders now effectively need to have an Australian financial services license. And when they're going to run a class action they need to provide a product disclosure statement. Mm -hmm. So all this sort of financial services regulation has sort of started to creep into class actions. And it's, I mean, frankly, it's not very fit for purpose. Um, mm -hmm. And I think we're going to be interested to see how that plays out. But the second thing, I guess, um, and this is the one which I guess I've been more interested in and which I think is the bigger issue, is uh, the funder's fee. Mm. So... Um, how does that get set and how do you um, provide some sort of oversight in relation to what the amount will be? And that too has sort of developed over time in that, you know, originally we were sort of, um, I guess it was like 30% would go to the funder. It's tended to come down a bit recently. So now it's sort of, you know, 20 to 30%. Mm -hmm. But we've seen class actions commenced where, um, the funder will make their claim on the uh, recovery, but they'll also have in their agreement um, a requirement that they're reimbursed for legal costs. Hmm. And the legal costs, um, once you add that for reimbursement, will mean that 50% of the recovery goes in costs. So the group members are only recovering half hmm. of um, the, whatever's um, paid in terms of the settlement. And so... What that has then um, caused a focus on is, well, are these class actions being brought for group members or are they there to enrich funders and lawyers? Mm -hmm. And it has to be said, um, it's not like all class actions um, operate in that way. What tends to happen is that if you've got a class action where the recovery is sort of only in the 20 to $30 million range, that, that quantum is not sufficient to, um, uh, I guess, meet the, um, the costs of mm -hmm. bringing the class action. Whilst if you've got a class action which is much larger than that, then obviously a, a great deal more goes off to the, uh, the group members. And so what that's then led to is, well, um, how do the courts provide oversight? And so there's a debate at the moment as to the power of the courts to effectively... Um, alter or set the litigation funders uh, percentage mm. and the way that it's tended to play out is um, there's uh, probably three or four judgments uh, just this year where the funder has sort of said oh you don't have power and the 
court's sort of gone, well, I'm not going to approve the settlement and I do have power not to approve the settlement. Mm -hmm. um, and so there's a bit of a sort of standoff <laughs> and typically the funder then says, look, I'll tell you what, I'll reduce my, my, my fee <laughs> and then the court goes, okay, I'll approve the class action. <laughs> Game of chicken. Yes, pretty much. Mm. Um, but that's not exactly a, um, a very satisfactory approach right. in terms of uh, regulating the, the size of the funder's fee. Mm -hmm. So how does this feed into the, the wider, I mean, not a debate about class actions, the existence of class actions, but how they should be conducted? Because it strikes me that this whole third party funding piece feeds into a sort of wider debate in Australian society about who is being enriched by class actions, whether the proliferation of them is a good thing, uh, whether businesses are being held to ransom, you know, all, all the old questions that get brought up when people talk about class actions. Is that sort of a, a wider social debate going on or do I have that wrong? Uh, no, look, I think, th I, I think that's, that is exactly what's starting to happen mm -hmm. is that uh, for a long time, uh, the class action, I guess, you know, it was just a civil procedure, you know, nothing very exciting, nobody really focusing on the procedural dynamics. Um, and now people are starting to realise, geez, um, this uh, procedure is allowing claims to be brought that otherwise would not occur. Mm -hmm. And so there is a question around, I guess, you know, um, to what extent is this achieving access to justice for the group members? So delivering on its the original objective set out by the Law Reform Commission and the Parliament. Mm -hmm. And to what extent is it really just um, lawyers and funders um, getting rich? Mm. And it's one of those things where the debate has become very polarised. Um, I mean, perhaps just like, you know, all other debates in society at present. Right. And, and the ability to have any sort of nuance or to try and sort of walk the, the, the middle line where you're going, well, we do need class actions, but we do also need to make sure that um, they're delivering compensation to the group members. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, there are mechanisms that could be put in place, um, legislative reforms that, that could address that. But it doesn't seem as though uh, that's where we're headed at the moment. At the moment, it all seems to be an all or nothing approach. Mm -hmm. And so the, the hope, I guess, is, I mean, to take a step back, um, in relation to class actions, we're now on our fourth inquiry. Wow. Um, but we haven't had any changes. So we, we had a Productivity Commission inquiry an Australian Law Reform Commission inquiry, a Victorian Law Reform Commission inquiry, and now we've got the uh, the Parliamentary um, Joint Committee inquiry. And it's like, um, <laughs> we're spending all this time <laughs> trying to fix things, but nobody seems to want to actually engage with the detail of how to fix it. How strange. And and over what time period are we talking, all these inquiries? So the, the VLRC and the ALRC were sort of 2018. Mm -hmm. The Productivity Commission... Um, it's an ironic name, I think really. it, well, <laughs> well, see, it was, it was looking at um, the justice system more broadly, mm. and class actions were a piece of that. But I'm thinking it's probably... Uh, it would have been like five to ten years earlier. Okay. So a fairly short time period in terms of legal change. Yes, yeah. yes, I'd okay. agree with that. Hmm. 
Okay, so then let's get back to the the way, the, the mechanism of how class actions work in Australia. So we've talked about third-party funding. Um, and tell us about this closed class mechanism that our listeners might have heard about from Australia. What is the closed class mechanism and how, how does it interact with third-party funding and the right to opt out? I mean, what is it? Okay, so uh, a, the closed class is effectively, it's when the group definition limits group membership um, to those claimants um, who have signed a funding agreement. Mm -hmm. So if you think, you know, normally when you do a group definition, it's, um, you know, it's somebody who suffered loss because of a breach of a particular law or, you know, statutory provision. Mm -hmm. Here, it's that, but in addition, there's an extra element added on that says to be in this class action, you also need to have signed the funding agreement. Mm-hmm. Now, the reason that this came about was because um, funders were worried about free riders. Right. In other words, uh, and this is where the, you can see how the funding arrangement doesn't fit with the opt-out class action. Mm-hmm. So the opt-out class action is designed to effectively include everybody that would have a claim. Mm-hmm. Well, the litigation funding comes along and says, yeah, but I can only recover um, my fee from those that have signed up. Mm-hmm. So if you're in the class action, but haven't signed the funding arrangement, you don't have to pay. And so the funder wanted to avoid that um, from continuing. And they they effectively, they ran a couple of class actions, um, I guess, trying to get that model um, refined. Um, originally, there were, there were two judgments that said, no, you can't do that. But ultimately, in a case called multiplex, mm-hmm. um, uh, the full federal court, um, or the full court of the federal court, which is the appellate level of the federal court, um, said based on the statutory construction, um, it, it's 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 perfectly possible to define the group so that it is cl- closed in that manner. Mm-hmm. However, you need to make sure that the right to opt out is preserved, so you can commence your class action on behalf of only a limited group of people. Mm-hmm. but you must then give them the right to opt out. Now, that seems strange. in some ways... If they've already signed uh, up, why would they then opt out? Is, no, no, it, that, that's exactly right. right. It, it's it, In some ways, it's a sort of... Um, it, it's really looking at the form over the substance. Okay. Because you're saying, oh, you, you have to give them the notice that they can opt out, but it's like, well, they've already opted in. <laughs> right. Um Unless something happens between when the class mm. actions commenced and the opt-out notice being provided, you would think that everybody is um, is just going to not return mm-hmm. those forms. Um, but the, the the problem with the closed class is that, um, firstly, it undermines access to justice. Mm-hmm. So, I, 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 at the time that this was um, endorsed, I wrote an article saying it was wrong um, based on statutory construction, but when you look at it from a policy perspective, um, it's contrary to the opt-out model in the mm. sense that you actually do create um, more hurdles for a person being able to be involved in the class action. Um, and they do have to sign up. So the whole reason for having an opt-out is then sort of lost. It becomes opt-in. It, it, it does effectively, mm-hmm. yes. Um, but then the other problem that it, um, it creates is it fosters multiple class actions. Because mm. if I bring a class action based on whoever signed my funding agreement, 
somebody else can then come along and they can either sign up a bunch of other people or what they can do is they could bring a class action and say, uh, no, we're not going to um, worry about signing them up. We're going to have an open class mm. um, and we'll catch everybody that's not signed up by you. Um, and probably the, the best example of that was the, um, the Centro shareholder class action mm -hmm. where the first class action was commenced and was closed and it was mainly brought by institutional shareholders. There was then a second class action brought which effectively said, well, we're bringing it for everybody who's not signed up. And it turned out that was another 5,000 um, retail investors mm. who otherwise would have made no, no recovery. So doesn't that work well then that, you know, one it's carved out for the opt-in people and then everyone else gets included in another class action and they just sort of work in parallel? The problem is that it increases the costs. Okay. So the, the economies of scale which sort of, um, I guess, a, a part of the, of the class action regime, you sort of lose because mm -hmm. you duplicate the claims. Right. And the, the courts have tried to sort of um, minimise that. But the fact is, if you've got two sets of lawyers, um, you're paying two sets of fees, mm -hmm. even, even if you are trying to minimise the work that they do. Mm -hmm. Okay, so the, then how, how does the common fund order, which is another... Australian, it's, a, it's an Australian term, but I don't think it's an Australian innovation because that's a, a common fund order, isn't it? Essentially, the uh, the lawyers or the third party funders can get their fee from any damages awarded to the class at the end of the proceeding. Is that correct? That's right. Mm. So, so the common fund order. Um, I mean, pe people will probably disagree with me here, but I I would argue that um, I suggested this through an article that I wrote drawing on my experience in the United States. Mm. And so I looked at the way the US did common fund orders in relation to legal fees and argued, well, we've got a problem in Australia because we've got litigation funders using closed classes. Mm -hmm. The common fund order is the solution to that problem. And so the idea of the common fund order, um, as you say, is it basically means the funder can get their fee from all of the group members. Right without needing there to be a contractual obligation. Mm -hmm. So that free rider problem we were talking about, that goes away because the common fund order made by the court means everybody has to pay. Mm -hmm. So you'd, you'd think it was a pretty good idea. Um, but the, um, the interesting thing is at the end of uh, 2019, um, that issue went to the High Court of Australia. So that's our um, our mm -hmm. um, highest court. Now, what was the name um, of in that a case, case? Yeah, sorry. BMW and Brewster. Right. And in that case, um, uh, a majority of the high court said the power that you're relying on um, to make the common fund order, which is 33ZF, um, that doesn't provide the power to do so at the beginning of the proceedings. So you can understand a funder um, wants to know that there's going to be a common fund order available if the matter settles or there's an award made. Mm -hmm. So they apply to the court saying, will you put this in place? Mm -hmm. And the court said, y yes, well, the um, full federal court once again said, yes, we'll, we'll put that in place, but um, it's subject to review by the court. So we agree to the 
approach, but we don't agree to your fee. The fee has to be reviewed and set at the end of the proceedings. Mm. Um, but anyway, the, the, the ramifications of that have been um, BMW and Brewster means you can't have that form of common fund order, which has meant that um, in, in some ways we've, it's back to the future for litigation funding in <laughs> Australia. Um, so group members, are, sorry, litigation funders are now having to book build, sign up group members, and we're waiting to see, you know, do they go back to the closed class um, or is there some other mechanism or some other power that gets used to be able to make um, common fund orders? Mm. It's so interesting because all these concepts are sort of alien to Canadian class action lawyers where we, we've mostly just had uh, opt-out class actions. I mean, the only opt-in requirement has been for maybe in some provinces, extra provincial class members, but mostly it's just been opt-out class actions. And there's no concept of, you know, what is book building? Why would you sign people up? Things like that. Whereas in England, where we've got group litigation orders and, and a much more individualized system, that's, that's par for the course. So it's all, all these different jurisdictions approach it differently, I suppose. Um, yes, yeah. and, and, and it has to be said, the, the reason that a lot of these issues have arisen in Australia is because we never got um, class action financing or uh, funding correct from the outset. Hmm. And so because that's been effectively developing over time, um, it's sort of, um, instead of it being this is the way that it works, it's a sort of area for innovation, hmm. but it's also meant um, a lot of uncertainty. Mm-hmm. And do you think if contingency fees had been allowed across the board, then those problems would have been uh, avoided? Um, I think it it certainly would have. Um, I think what it would have done is you wouldn't have had the need for litigation funding. Mm. Um, I mean, there is still, um, I guess, an argument that you need somebody to cover um, cover off on the loser pays costs mm -hmm. risk. Um, and some cases are so large that a lawyer is likely to say, yeah, I, I prefer to have a funder there paying my fee as I go mm -hmm. rather than risking it all. So, so we probably still would have got funding, but um, a lot more cases would have been brought by um, lawyers using the contingency fee. And so you would have had, um, I guess, certainty that, that that's the way in which you could finance a class action. Mm. Okay. So we're drawing towards the end of our time, but I, I wanted to ask you uh, as well about, uh, given Australia's federal structure, uh, do you have the same problem, and I think you do, but if you can confirm, give more detail, do you have the same problem as Canada does with competing multi-jurisdictional class actions? Now, I've got to say, this is probably one of the most complex questions, um, but I can give you a, um, a short answer, which is, um, we don't have the same problem. Okay. And that all comes down to a case called, um, so once again, High Court of Australia, um, it's Mobile Oil against Victoria. Mm -hmm. uh, 2002 is the case. And that was a, um, uh, an, a, 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 an attack by the defendants on the class action, for, basically on the basis that um, the class action regime um, would create, and I, I'll quote it, a national court for the conduct of class actions. Mm -hmm. And the idea was 
you are bringing in group members from other states who don't have any connection to Victoria. So it's a constitutional and, challenge kind of thing. Exactly. Right. And um, the High Court of Australia said, that's not a problem. And their approach was to say, um, this, is, this is just another piece of litigation. And the way that we determine whether a court has jurisdiction over a matter is whether the defendant is able to be served in the state mm -hmm. or there's some form of long arm statute that will establish a connection to the state. Mm -hmm. So if the um, representative party, the plaintiff, um, sues a defendant in a particular court with a class action regime and that's uh, satisfied, then you can include whatever group members you want. And so the idea that, oh, that, um, that group member who's in Western Australia and dealt with the defendant in Western Australia, doesn't matter. They can, hmm. be, they can be in the class action in Victoria. So that's then the, what Canadians would call a national opt-out class action. But what about competing national opt-out class actions, which we have in Canada? Do you don't have those in Australia? No, so that, that can arise. And I guess it, that, that's probably, I guess, a, um, I was going to say a more recent phenomenon, but mm. I, I suppose what's, what's fair to say is it's become um, a bigger problem recently whilst it has um, existed previously. Mm. And the way that that's generally dealt with is we have um, what's called cross-vesting legislation. Mm. And so the way that the cross-vesting legislation works is it allows a court to transfer a proceeding from one state or federal court to another if it's in the interest of justice. Okay. So um, a what, I mean, what effectively happens is generally it's a defendant will go to a court and say, um, I've been sued over in this other court. Um, that other court's the more appropriate jurisdiction. Mm -hmm. Can you transfer this case over there? Mm. And largely, um, the Australian courts have been fairly cooperative and keen to avoid, you know, um, those sorts of competing class actions. And so they will generally all get centralized in one location. Now, that's become a little fraught uh, recently because we had a class action um, against a, um, a company called AMP, which mm -hmm. is a sort of financial services uh, institution. Mm -hmm. And there were five class actions commenced, four in the federal court and one in New South Wales. And um, there were a few uh, judgments about anti-suit injunctions and Effectively, it was the the various plaintiff lawyers um, fighting to right. see who would get carriage of the matter. Mm -hmm. um, but ultimately, the judges um, ended up writing these um, uh, these <laughs> these judgments that were very much like this is an unseemly approach, um, and as a result, um, we are going to transfer the four cases from the federal court to the New South Wales court, and they will all be heard there. Uh, so at the moment, um, it seems to be working, but there have been uh, suggestions for reform uh, raised by the Australian Law Reform Commission because competing class actions have become a, um, a, a bigger issue recently. Mm -hmm. And that's presumably competing within states, not just between states. 
So different law firms in Victoria, for example, would compete for the same action. Is that is that a thing as well? Yes. So I mean, in the AMP case, uh, five class actions, all with uh, different lawyers and um, different funders. Mm. Although one of the class actions, interestingly, the class action that was chosen um, to go ahead had no funder. Hmm. That's interesting. Okay, so uh, we're drawing to the end of our time now. So uh, where do you see Australian class actions heading in the future? It sounds like there's a lot of uncertainty over there right now. Where, where do you think that the dust is going to settle? So I guess, um, so the, the, the financing of the, is at the moment, I think, the main issue. Mm -hmm. And whilst ever the financing is uncertain, that I think is going to sort of slow down um, the commencement of class actions mm -hmm. because litigation funders are going to get nervous about their ability to recover on their investments. Um, so I think the, 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 the two pieces of the puzzle at the moment are how are funders going to be regulated. Mm -hmm. Now, we've seen some funders, um, so Omni Bridgeway, which was originally IMF Bentham in Australia, mm -hmm. and was our first class action, it's listed on the Australian um, Securities Exchange, announced yesterday it had obtained its Australian Financial Service licence. Um, it's basically up, ready to roll. Mm -hmm. You know, you can, the government can throw whatever regulatory requirements it wants out there. Um, some funders are big enough and committed enough to the market that they're just like, yep, we just roll with the punches and mm -hmm. we keep funding. But I think we will also see some who will go, eh, maybe Australia is not as lucrative as, as it has been in the past. Mm -hmm. The second piece of the puzzle is the Victorian group costs order, because that obviously allows lawyers to bring a class action without the assistance of a funder. Um, they may need to get some after the event insurance to protect against the um, loser pays risk. Mm -hmm. But the, the interesting thing there is going to be, do we see class actions gravitate to the state of Victoria because there's this um, favourable way in which to finance class actions for the plaintiff's lawyers? Mm -hmm. And then I think the, the other um, aspect is going to be, um, whilst we're trying to regulate um, at that one level of you know, what can you and can't you do, um, are, are we going to get into the point of actually trying to give the court the power to really have oversight over litigation funders' fees? Um, and indeed, um, how is the court going to, in relation to the Victorian group costs order, how are they going to exercise their oversight of those sorts of fees? Because if they start to go, oh yes, you know, class action lawyers can charge 30%, um, I think there will be a massive outcry because that's, you know, that's very large compared right. to what lawyers would normally recover in mm -hmm. a class action in Australia. And then the, the last part, I guess, is um, we are starting to see government look at changing the substantive law. So there's a realisation that, okay, the class action's the procedure mm -hmm. and it lets you group all of these proceedings and, you know, that has a lot of advantages. But at the end of the day, you've got to have a cause of action. Mm -hmm. And some of the Australian causes of action um, are, I guess, um, they're quite easy to be able to commence. Um, they are set up so that, you know, at least in terms of the common issues, the whole focus is on was there misconduct by the defendant? Mm 
And so the defendant has to go through a long um, period of basically, um, you know, media reports, um, you know, attacks on its reputation. Negative publicity. Yeah. Negative publicity mm -hmm. before it might get to the point of going, actually, there's no causation or there's no loss. Mm -hmm. um, and so that, I think, is also where there's going to be uh, some attention, whether those sorts of um, causes of action need to be looked at more closely. Um, but uh, otherwise, I think it's it's fair to say that the class action regime is is going to continue on, um, and it's it, it has shown itself in its 27 years to be a very innovative procedure, and the lawyers that are involved are very innovative, and so mm. as a result, um, it's a very interesting place um, to be involved. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it certainly sounds it. Uh, it's been really interesting hearing about how Australia works and and comparing it to how. Uh, Canada works and and just the different nuances over there. It sounds like it's it it can be a lot more involved over there than it is in Canada, where uh, things seem to be a little bit more straightforward. Although some might disagree with me on that. But uh, thank you so much for for coming onto the show, Michael. Thank you for sharing your insights, and uh, I really appreciate your time. And uh, what is it, 10 a.m. over there in Sydney now? Uh, about that, yes. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, I hope you have a great day and uh, thanks again for coming in. Thanks for your time and uh, take care. Thank you very much. It's been, been great. Okay, thanks, Michael. All the best. Bye-bye. Bye. Thanks for joining us. You've been listening to Certified, Canada's Class Actions podcast, hosted and produced by Suzanne Kyoto. Graphic design is by Suzanne Kyoto and Rob Haskins. And the music is by Scott Holmes at freemusicarchive.org. Website and distribution are courtesy of Simplecast. Be sure to tune in for next week's episode. You can also visit the show's website, certified.simplecast.com, where you can subscribe in iTunes, Google Podcast, and Spotify, or by RSS. You can also find announcements about the show on my Twitter account, Kyoto Accord. Till next time, stay safe and stay classy.